a very warm welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast with your host, Paul Lowe. Paul offers wisdom, insights and tips for living a healthy, meaningful, purposeful life. On the back of overcoming extreme adversity, Paul has a proven track record of achieving life-enhancing results. He offers empowering advice and guidance to help people develop a mindset for success so that they can live with more happiness and prosperity. Through his Mastering the Game of Life podcast and books, Paul also helps people to get their own inspirational messages and powerful stories out into the world, as well as being involved in supporting many charitable organisations in their development, fundraising and projects. Hello listeners and a very, very warm welcome to this podcast episode. Today, I'm going to be talking with a lady from Ohio, from the United States of America, a lady by the name of Chris Putnam Walkerley. And Chris and I have spoken before, you may recall, around her book. So we're going to be diving into the, uh, into the second part of her book. But we've decided to reframe this. You know, we've decided to reframe this around a question or more. Well, a question and a statement, really. And the statement is, the game's changing. The question is, how will you master it? And I know Chris is going to focus in on her philanthropy expertise. So without further ado, Chris, an extremely warm welcome. Welcome back. Thank you, Paul. It's wonderful to be back. So let's, uh, let's set the tone then, Chris, with around your book, Delusional Altruism. Why philanthropists fail to achieve change and what they can do to transform giving. And I've already said, listeners, it's the transform giving bit that that we're really interested in digging down on this second part. So uh, set the scene for us, Chris, if you will. So, you know, I've been advising philanthropists of all kinds around the world for over 20 years. And by philanthropists, you know, I mean ultra high net worth and high net worth donors and leaders of foundations, corporate giving programs, family offices. And, you know, these donors genuinely want to make a difference and create impact and create positive change in the world. But they are often getting in their own way and they're actually preventing themselves from having the impact that they seek. And they often don't realize that's happening. And so I refer to that as delusional altruism. They want to be altruistic, but they're delusional, if you will, um, about getting in their own way. And I don't mean, you know, that they're crazy. I just mean they're clinging on to misguided beliefs um, that are actually detrimental and holding them back. And so in the book, I talk about, you know, how this happens and how all of us can be delusional in our altruism and our giving uh, and instead how to be transformational and to really create lasting change on whatever issue or community or cause you care about, but often by transforming yourself as a funder, as a donor, and changing how you give. And that's really the promise of the book. So if I'm hearing you correct, Chris, the old adage of giving with a good heart is only one side of the coin. It's not enough to say that anymore. It's very targeted and very focused isn't it or giving needs to be that way these days does it not sure i mean it definitely should come from your heart you know uh passion um issues that mean something to you you care about deeply that bring you joy you know that's all very important for a donor um 
to feel that kind of passion, but it has to be more than that, you know, to create the kind of change that you want, you know, you really need to be thoughtful, building trusting relationships, uh, investing in the organizations you're supporting and thinking, you know, thoughtfully, if not strategically about the best way to create the kind of change that you want and, you know, the partners you want to involve and, and, you know, there's all kinds of um, approaches and strategies that go into effective giving. Mm. One of the chapters in your book, Chris, is focusing on around starting with the right questions. Before we have a look at that, I just want to quote something. And um, I can't quite remember, Chris, if I'm honest about we we flirted with this before. But something that I firmly believe to be true in a more generic sense, and it's this. The bigger the question, the bigger the answer. The bigger the answer, the better the or the greater the awareness and the greater the awareness, the greater the outcome. So it all starts with the importance and the significance of the question. Mm-hmm. So in your in your uh, part two of your book, Chris, you uh, I think it's chapter eight. You start with the right questions. Give, give us um, take us down that road. Well, what is a right question? Yeah, well, you know, questions are very powerful. And when you do start with the right questions, it can take you down the right path of creating that transformational change. And when you start with the wrong questions, it can take you down the wrong path. And so, you know, one of the first questions I suggest funders ask themselves is simply why. And I ask that for two reasons. One is really to understand your purpose. You know, why do you want to give? Uh, What's the why of your philanthropy? why does your philanthropy exist in the world? What kind of change are you trying to create? And, you know, really you have to understand, you don't have to do this to get started, but ultimately I think you have to understand your purpose, your why, because everything you do should flow from that um, and should be aligned to that so that you have confidence that the way that you're focusing your giving is aligned to your values, aligned to the kind of philanthropic family you want to be, aligned to the kind of purpose and impact you want to have in the world. Um, And that's really important. And the second reason to ask why, I think, is to question assumptions. Um, And so, you know, in philanthropy as in life, there's never, you know, there's no shortage of problems and challenges in the world. And there's no shortage of good sounding organizations, leaders, solutions, you know, interesting approaches, uh, you know, like crowdfunding or the ice bucket challenge or, you know, you name it. Uh, There's all kinds of trends and bandwagons. And these things aren't bad. Uh, They're often fabulous. But it's important um, that you first, you know, again, understand your why, your purpose and the kind of philanthropists and the kind of impact you want to have. So that you can then ask why to question assumptions and as people are approaching you requesting funding or trying to get you to become part of their funding initiative or, you know, approach your giving in a certain way, I think it's really important to ask why just to, just to make sure that whatever is being suggested to you or that you're thinking about doing is actually in alignment with the purpose of your philanthropy and what you're seeking to accomplish so that it doesn't take you off course. Hmm. There's a train of thought, Chris. It's a very general one, so maybe I'm taking it away just a touch from this thread here. 
there's a train of thought that when we give, the most things that we do in life are, are for inverted commas, selfish reasons. You know, we give because it makes us feel better. Do you agree with that? Or do you think people can actually just give for the pure goodness of giving? You know, I actually, one of the questions I suggest um, all donors ask themselves in the book is, does this bring me joy? Is my giving bringing me joy? And I actually make the point, um, I believe that uh, donors should actually receive more than you give. And by that, I do not mean, you know, receive more money back than you give or receive more in like PR or ego, you know, strokes of your ego, I really mean like receive more joy. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's perfectly appropriate and helpful and um, critical, actually, that donors, people who give are experiencing joy in their giving. Now, you know, philanthropy isn't always easy. It's not easy when you're supporting and trying to help people who are in crisis because their child died of cancer or their community was destroyed completely in a wildfire or whatever it might be. But I do believe that on, on the whole, you should, the ways that you're giving, the causes you're supporting, the changes you're seeing, how you spend your time as a philanthropist should be energizing. It should give you energy, not take the energy away. And I do think that's really important. And it's important because I mean, if nothing else, you know, you want to sustain philanthropy over time and people who are energized and feeling joyful about their giving, I think are much more likely to give more and to give for a longer sustained period of time and, you know, engage their family in their philanthropic giving. So I, I do think that's an important uh, component of this. Mm, absolutely. So acting abundantly. You see and act abundantly. Is that bringing in this, the concept of begin with the end in mind? You know, this this gives me this whole sense of abundance. This is where I want to be with this. Yeah, well, it's interesting. In the book, I contrast a scarcity mindset with an abundance mindset. And, you know, you'd think, and we talked about this a little bit in the last uh, episode, that you'd think that donors, you know, who have, if you are philanthropic, you have access to wealth. I mean, you might not have a billion dollars, but you have enough money that you have extra to give away. And so you, you, you wouldn't think to equate that with a scarcity mindset, but I think too often uh, donors actually have a scarcity mindset, meaning a lot of things, meaning they hold back on investment in themselves, their own learning, their own development, and really understanding the issues and building relationships with grantees. They hold back true investment in the nonprofit partners by, you know, kind of focusing on not giving enough money for overhead and, um, you know, restricting the grants and only giving out money one year at a time, even though the problems require a five or 10 year, you know, solution. And so, uh, you know, feeling fearful uh, in your giving, thinking you don't have enough to make a difference. All these are emblematic of a scarcity mindset. And what I advise funders to do is really embrace abundance and um, to really kind of have that mindset that the more invest you in, the more that you invest in yourself and your operation and your philanthropy and in the nonprofit partners you support, the more impact you're going to have. You know, that in order to 
have the greatest impact, you really need to be the best philanthropist that you can be. And so, you know, that can manifest itself in a lot of ways. Um, and a lot of those ways have nothing to do with spending any money. So really, this is a belief. It's a mindset of abundance. Uh, it could be, you know, having the courage to really um, continuously grow and develop yourself and, and put yourself in positions where you feel uncomfortable because your worldview is being challenged a bit. Uh, but really that courage to do that, um, to embrace inclusion and include the diverse perspectives of people, you know, throughout the community or the people that you're trying to help to engage them in, in the development of the solutions you're trying to support. Um, really believing that you deserve the best, you deserve the best advice, guidance, research, talent around you, uh, staff to support you. Um, you know, you're really thinking big, thinking outside of your own grant budget to really think about, you know, how do I, maybe I only have whatever, $10,000, a million dollars to give away, but I could leverage that with other people's dollars and collectively we could create $10 million uh, to have a much greater impact. So all these things, I think it's really thinking about, you know, what's the end game? What are we trying to accomplish? Where are we right now? And what do we need to do to get to where we want to be? And that's the abundance mindset is to think about, well, you know, not just restrict ourselves to our current situation as a donor, but, you know, what, who are the people, the systems, the resources, the partners we can bring together to collectively create the kind of change that we want to see? And the ultimate, what you, three simple words, Chris, you transform lives because that's what this is all about, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the rest, you know, I'm not going to trivialise it by suggesting they're stepping stones, but ultimately, you know, to use that cliche of all roads lead to Rome, well, all roads here lead to you transform lives. Tell us a little bit about that chapter, Chris. What I mean, on the surface of it, it's self-explanatory, but gives a little bit more uh, filling on the bones, if you will. Sure. Well, you know, again, I think... I believe that as a donor, uh, it's important to create solutions and change that lasts. You know, we can all give Band-Aid solutions and solve, you know, kind of contribute to immediate problems. And that can be very important. But ultimately, I think we want to change things for the better so that we can walk away and the change stays, right? So, you know, let's take um, the COVID pandemic. So obviously, people need, you know, health access to healthcare, they might need food, uh, they might need, you know, they're, 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 they might have been fired from their job or let go of their job or lost their business because of the economic impact. And they need immediate help. Uh, if you're recovering from a fire or a tsunami or, you know, whatever it is, like people need shelter, food, safety. And that's really important. And in any sector, there's always, you know, if it's dealing with homeless issues, people need shelter, right? But it's important to go beyond that and really think about, again, like how can we have a transformational impact um, and a lasting impact? But to do that, I think we need to transform and change how we give, that how we give really matters and makes a difference in the kind of impact we want to have. So you know, that could include things like systems change and policy change. I mean, you look at the, you know, 
all of these young people around the world who had to stop if they were if they had access to school, which is a whole other conversation. But if, assuming that, then they had to go home. And then, you know, you, the world is quickly divided into the haves and the have-nots. So that the haves, having internet access, having access to a device that you could use, having space, you know, in your house to be able to go online and do Zoom education, as my children did, uh, or uh, not having access, not having internet access, not having a device, not having a parent around to help you, whatever it might be. And so you think about, you know, sure, you can you know, hand out tablets and computers to everybody. And that's good. That's important. But, you know, more importantly, I think you need to make sure that everyone has access to the internet and, you know, that parents have decent paying jobs so that they can afford to buy their kids what they need, uh, that we're not relying on handouts. And so I think you can think about kind of the systems change and, and policy changes and education policy as just one example, or, you know, take the homelessness example. Of course, you want to make sure people have shelter if they, uh, to keep them off the street. But more importantly, you want people to have access to mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, a job, you know, that pays them enough money that they can afford their own apartment and to be able to stay there. And so in the training, whatever they need to be successful and thriving on their own. So I think a lot of it is has to do with, um, you know, that kind of change that we want to seek. But also, you know, there's so many different ways to approach being transformational. I think it's important to ensure that we create solutions that are advancing, you know, equity, racial equity and racial justice uh, so that we look at, you know, who whose needs are being met and whose needs are not being met and ensuring that everybody has what they need to thrive. Uh, and incorporate a racial equity lens. I think it's really important to, um, you know, again, in thinking about how we give to create transformational change, recognizing that the people who are most impacted by whatever problem or issue we're trying to help solve, that they are often the ones who, who, who know what their needs are and can help identify the best solutions to meet those needs. And so how do you engage in building trusting relationships with the, the nonprofit organizations that are leading that charge and uh, listening to and involving the community members who are most impacted by the problem in the solution, if that is because you're interviewing them or conducting focus groups or you're involving them on your advisory board or helping them engage them in, in some aspect of your funding decision-making there's lots of ways to engage diverse perspectives so that you can ultimately create the greatest outcome and create the greatest impact on the world. Um, so those are just some of the ways that I recommend uh, that, that, that donors think about being transformational in their giving. I wanna skip forward now listeners to the penultimate chapter five on the surface of it five very simple words on the surface of it boy do these capture the essence of what it's all about from my in uh, from my humble opinion and those five words are this you do what it takes yes okay. i love those five words you do what it takes because you know when we're talking about philanthropy or life in general and there is also a train of thought is there not that how we do one thing is how we do everything i mean that's just we could have 
blimey, we could have a podcast out of that topic just in its own right. So, you know, very mindful of not going too far down that road, if, if at all. But you do what it takes. Is it literally just a frame of mind or is that oversimplifying it? Well, I think it's both. It's, it's a frame of mind and but you have to take action. And, you know, I think what's happening too often, you know, philanthropy's response to a crisis, uh, many funders are taking action, but too many funders are, quite frankly, have gone into hiding or they are taking a wait and see approach. And by going into hiding, I mean, they're nowhere to be found. Either they feel so fearful and overwhelmed by what's happening uh, in the crisis that they are just, you know, uh, sort of hiding under the covers, um, deer in the headlights, or, um, you know, and, and for an example of that, there was a study by WealthX in July of the world's billionaires. And uh, so this is July 2020, uh, right in the thick of uh, COVID, and about 10% of the world's billionaires had donated or pledged to donate in response to COVID, 10%. So that means 90% hadn't pledged or donated anything in response to COVID. And these are the billionaires, right? And so, you know, they're in hiding for whatever reason. I think there's a lot of donors that are taking a wait and see approach. Uh, and, and this is a common response to a crisis where, you know, either because you're so overwhelmed, you're not quite sure what to do, and you kind of feel paralyzed by all the changes, you stop. And you decide to wait and see how things shake out. Um, I talked to one, you know, CEO early in the pandemic who, you know, said that that was their board's approach and he was trying to get them to shift, but they were adamant. Let's just wait and see. We have a pre-scheduled board retreat seven months from now. So let's just do nothing, basically. <laughs> in seven months, we'll see where this whole pandemic thing is going and then we'll decide if we're going to give, Right. And in fact, you know, if any of your listeners are interested in learning more, I, I have a short article about uh, six mistakes philanthropists make during a crisis and what they can do instead. It's a free download and you can just go to sixcrisismistakes.com and download that um, if you're interested. But I think, you know, what I am advising funders to do right now is to recognize that um, there's lots of things you can do to help change the world, even when the world keeps changing. And, you know, I think right now people are feeling like, gosh, there's not just one crisis, there's multiple crises. And it feels like, you know, the hits keep coming and the future is uncertain. And it can be very easy to, you know, feel like let's just, let's just wait and see. Um, but I think, you know, and what this chapter, you do what it takes speaks to is, you know, often the, the right next move is to move, um, that you have to keep going. And because the, you know, even when the future feels uncertain, because the reality is, you know, the future is no more uncertain today than it was last year or last decade or last century, right? And so I think we have to have an approach that, um, of thinking about how do we make the good use of what's right in front of us right now to make the most good possible and to really shift our mindset uh, of rather than allowing, and again, this is an abundance approach, rather than allowing the idea of an unknown future to paralyze us, let it free us. Because again, the future is always unknown and 
we can create a plan despite all this uncertainty and move forward, recognizing that, um, you know, we'll have to change things along the way and really thinking about, you know, planning ahead, um, whether it's creating your, you know, starting a foundation or creating your giving plan or, you know, quite frankly, planning a wedding for next year, like whatever you're trying to plan that you feel like you can't uh, really think about, you know, how do we, um, you know, how do we create the best plan uh, quickly based on the information we currently have available, uh, use it immediately for as long as the conditions warrant, as long as it makes sense, and then make changes to that plan rapidly as conditions change. Because, and recognize the conditions are going to change. So, so like, let that free you uh, so that you do have a, you know, a decision-making framework to guide your decisions, to uh, help you decide how to best allocate your time, or if you have a team, how to allocate your team's time toward what you're trying to accomplish and essentially build in time, like if it's quarterly or every month or whatever it is, to reflect on, you know, what's changing, therefore, how do we need to change and adapt our plan uh, to accommodate what's going on in the world or going on internally, so that you always have a, a, a sentient and flexible and helpful decision-making framework to guide your action. And so really, that's what that chapter, You Do What It Takes, is a lot about, you know, the implementation of strategy and, you know, really moving quickly into into whatever it is you're seeking to do, but recognizing you're probably gonna to have to make changes along the way. So listeners, you know, I always ask a big question at the end to bring things to a, well, to a, a nice conclusion. That word nice, where did that come from? Anyway, I've said it, so it doesn't matter. So Chris, I just want to ask you before uh, I do go in and we dive into that big final question, how can people find out more about you? What's your contact details? Oh, great. Well, yes. So as I mentioned before, um, you know, one great way is to download that article that I mentioned, just go to sixcrisismistakes.com. And that is part of my website. Um, so you'll, you know, you'll be on my website right there, where you can also find um, information about the book, which is called Delusional Altruism. It's available on Amazon worldwide, and Barnes and Noble and all kinds of other places. Um in fact, there's a bookstore in the Netherlands I just learned of that is carrying the book. So um, I'm sure your audiences can find it. So I, I encourage you to go to that website. Um, and of course, I'd be delighted if you ordered the book. Superb, superb. So the big question, Chris, the big question. Drum roll, listeners, please. And it's this. And we'll, we'll frame this, Chris, in the context of philanthropy, because obviously your question... Uh, it's such a wide-ranging one. It could apply to anything, literally anything. But so we'll frame it in, in uh, as I say, in, in the context of philanthropy. And it's the title of this podcast, quite simply, The Game's Changing. Chris, how will you master it? How will I personally master The game no. Changing? In, in the uh, in the context of philanthropy. You know, if you could, if I could really kind of, you know, these these. These 15 excellent chapters in your book, if I could ask you for a snapshot, it's a massive question I'm asking, by the way. Some would say, some of the listeners, oh, it's a bit unfair to put a guest on that kind of uh, on that kind of spot. Um, 
I don't think it is, Chris, because obviously you're standing with, you know, within the world and you, the respect you've got um, is beyond immense. So it is a big question, but big players can answer big questions. And I've got no doubt you, you can answer this one. So, as I say, the context is in philanthropy, within your professional hat, if you will. You know, how will you master it? How will you help others master it? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the answer is actually simple. Um, or it's simpler than it seems, right? And so, again, the point is, that I was mentioning earlier, is the game is always changing, mm. right? The, the game has not stopped changing since the beginning of time, and it will continue changing. And so, really, I think what any, all of us need to do is kind of relax into that reality. Um, and and the mastery, I believe, is is the clarity. Clarity on, on the what. What are you seeking to accomplish? Uh, in your life, in your philanthropy, in your business, your family, whatever that is, uh, looking at where you are today in that area, um, uh, taking an honest look at it, and then deciding upon, you know, what are the two to three to four most important things that I need to focus on to get me from where I am today to where I'm trying to be? And and moving quickly on each of those, if that could be, you know, delegating some of that, everybody gets a priority and they need to move on it or you're responsible for all of it, whatever it is. But that's your strategy, really. And, you know, where, where are we headed? Where are we today? And how do we get from he- where we are today to where we want to go quickly, like in the next year, not the next, you know, 10 years, but the next 12 months. And assume that things will change assume that the conditions around you in the world will change. There might be an election. There might be a change in the economy. There might be, I don't know, a meteor that hits the planet. Who knows? Right. But more likely there could be, you know, an illness or something will happen. Right. So how do you just literally simply build time into your calendar, like block out two hours every two months to reflect on here's my strategy. Here's where I'm headed. Here's my game plan. What's changed and how do I adjust and adapt to what's changed? And how do I look out into the future and say, well, how do I need to be agile and, and kind of think ahead and in a, a, a either navigate around things that are coming or turn them to my advantage uh, so that I can create the change that I want? And, and the advantage to doing all of this is, is really the alternative is you're sort of sitting in your living room wondering what to do with your time, right? Or you're busy, 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 like checking your email and going to webinars and, you know, doing all this stuff, but it isn't like the right stuff. It's not the stuff that you need to be focusing on. And so, you know, when the game is changing, as it always is, I advocate, you know, um, get a game plan and uh, activate on that game plan manifest that game plan and and plan to make adjustments as you go. Chris, immense gratitude for sharing your wisdom, your immense experience. And as I already said, listeners, you know, once you do check Chris out, you'll find out she is what I term, I use this, this phraseology, she's on a world stage and she's on a world stage for a reason. She's helping a lot of people throughout the world do great things. Immense gratitude for that, Chris, because boy, are we, you know, you're right. You know, the game's always ever changing, but someone else, I suppose it's always relative but we're in the middle of monumental change now aren't we so as I say you know with, with people out there that uh, are batting at the crease to use a, a British term 
you know, those, those people deserve immense credit. So my gratitude to you, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And there we have it, listeners. The game's changing. So I ask you, listeners, how will you master it? And on that note, remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts. Thanks very much for listening to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. If you found it interesting and helpful, drop a line to Paul via paul at paul-low.com with any thoughts or questions you may have. He'd love to hear from you and he'd be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at www.paul-low.com. Remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts.